Astonishing Legends would like to thank Squarespace, Mint Mobile, Purple, Best Fiends, Wondrium, Upstart, our contributors at Patreon.com, and you, our listeners, for making tonight's show possible. The term disclosure has undoubtedly become more and more prevalent over the past several years, and we're betting that most of our listeners only think of one thing when they consider that word these days, UFOs, or the more recently rebranded UAP, Unidentified Aerial Phenomena. We've had more than a few discussions about disclosure as it relates to the big picture on our show, especially since the now infamous front page story with the words real UFOs appeared above the fold on the December 17th, 2017 edition of the New York Times. It's hard to believe our show on that issue is now nearly four years old. What has happened since then? In some ways, not much at all. In others, a lot. There's not been a high volume of information, but what information has come out has been at least a little bit revelatory. We use that word revelatory because it's in the Merriam-Webster definition of disclosure. Divulgence, exposure, revelation. Unfortunately, the revelations aren't connected so much as to what UAP might be, but more towards how the United States government has been taking the reports and sightings of them a lot more seriously than you thought and for a lot longer than you thought. After all these years of stark denial and attempts to convince everyone who entertained the notion of little green men as foolish, now the US government is admitting there's something they don't understand. But it turns out that there's even less information connecting UAP to aliens or life from somewhere else than there is evidence of the craft themselves. The Times laid bare that the U.S. military had indeed spent millions coalescing the details of multiple encounters between high-ranking military personnel and unknown aerial vehicles. Vehicles that seemed to defy physics, simply choosing to be in the places they wanted to be in, without regard for the rules of time and space. The most sophisticated technology available backs up these stories, with redundant systems corroborating everything observed by humans in most cases. Did we mention that these crafts seem to be able to do all the same things underwater as well? Along the way, one particular man seemed to be the go-to source for video clips from these encounters. That man, Jeremy Corbell, has appeared on every major television network and the Joe Rogan show to discuss the clips, their origins, and what they may contain. As you can imagine, his paranormal experience is not limited to military encounters with UAP. His mentor is George Knapp, the investigative journalist at the center of a multitude of stories that we've touched on over the years, including Skinwalker Ranch. As a filmmaker, Jeremy has directed and produced a fascinating documentary on a man who claims to have worked on alien propulsion systems at Site S4 outside of Area 51, Bob Lazar. Jeremy and a mutual friend of Astonishing Legends, Adam, have also investigated some cattle mutilations together. How does everything connect? It seems the further you look into all these kinds of mysteries, the more questions you have. Welcome back to Astonishing Legends. I'm Scott Philbrook, and this is Jeremy Corbell. 
I released something the world has never seen before, which is corroborative sensor data tied to FLIR visual data, which was the radar screen from inside the CIC, which is the Combat Information Center. It's a classified room, all this stuff, but I, I was legally able to do it because I obtained everything and it was inherently unclassified because it was a, a navigation radar. Join us tonight as we sit down with Jeremy Corbell and our mutual friend Adam to discuss what it's like being one of the most visible UFO investigators working right now. And we're back. Uh, that we are, oh, folks. Oh, wait, hold on. There was, I, had a, I had a gag for that. Hold on. And, and we're back. Wait, no, I was going to say, eh. <laughs> Are you, are you, do you want to let me in on the gag? Cause I don't know what you're doing. No, uh, okay. there's no gag. That's, oh, okay. I can't, we're not doing it cause I can't remember. Oh, okay. Okay. There was gotcha. Something, but it had to do okay. with, uh, something that we're doing tonight, but okay. here we go. And we're back that we are folks. And wow, the past couple of weeks have been amazing for us. <laughs> yes, it was a whirlwind, man. That's for sure. We just got back from Nashville where we had our whole team for podcast movement, which is a convention for podcasters. That was a lot of fun. It was actually the first time mm -hmm. ever that all five of our core members have been together and at all that met each other even. We have never all five of us. I mean, I'd met different members of them in different mm. places, but that was the first mm -hmm. time all five of us have been in the same place. So that was actually that is a lot true. of fun. And it was like a retreat. I loved it. Yes, uh, it was magic. And on yeah. top of that, we had a fabulous meetup along with our friends Adam and Matt from Graveyard Tales for about 100 listeners at the Pharmacy Burger Parlor and Beer Garden. And that was a ton of fun. We'd really like to thank everyone who came out for that. And you know who you are. But we really, really appreciated the show of support, and it was great meeting all of you and getting to talk to a lot of you and hearing your personal stories, so sincere thanks for that. With possible pending lockdowns on the horizon again, we're glad we got that one squeezed in under the wire, and here's hoping we can have another meetup in the not-too-distant future. Also, folks, if you were missing us the past few weeks or just want to hear me at least in a little bit of a different environment, you've got to check out my recent hop across the pond to one of our favorite shows, the Lorbet, our English-British cousins. It was a really fun and fantastic conversation like, like you would have over a couple of pints, and these guys are hilarious. Well, they're comedians. <laughs> they made me laugh a lot. And I was just on episode 75 of their show, which dropped on August 4th, to discuss the soap woman of Lake Crescent. The, the who of what? The, the soap lady. Come on, you, you know the soap lady, oh, right? Oh, right, right, the soap lady. Yeah. <laughs> Look, folks, the Lormen do have a great show, somewhat in the vein of Astonishing Legends, but a lot funnier. And when Forrest <laughs> is on there, even he is funny. So get oh, over there and you. check it out. Uh, we'll have a link to that episode in our show notes. <laughs> and if you still can't get enough of me, I also recently spent a good while talking with our friend Bradley Netherton and his co-host Robert over at their podcast called Cole Shack's Loop about a lot of stuff and only minimally about Shack. <laughs> we talked about uh, Stephen King, horror movies, our favorite elements of all those uh, kinds of things, uh, neurology. We always have a lot of fun talking about those kinds of things, and so we just let it roll. And uh, But we do talk about Shack a little bit. Uh, it was supposed to be about the, uh, the shapeshifters skinwalker type episode with Richard Keel. Remember him? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Shack's Loop is centered in discussion around all things Shack, the main character from the cult classic TV show, Shack the Night Stalker. Uh, you can find this show wherever you get your podcasts, of course. Oh, and uh, Rich Haddam has been on it as well, so dig through that back catalog. Mm. He's, he's obsessed with Shack. Yeah, Rich is on there for two episodes, I believe, yeah. and a lot of really fascinating guests that Bradley manages to get. And a friend of mine has been watching all the Shack, so this is especially enlightening. Yes. Well, anyway, let's kick the tires and light the fires. 
Uh, but wait, there's one more place, uh, one more oh. show we need to mention. We cannot leave out oh, the Podfather yes. of all paranormal Podfathers. Of course, Jim. That's right, folks. We also recently sat down with our very good friend and the man who inspired us to get into podcasting, Jim Harold, over at the Paranormal Podcast. We had a blast talking to him. He posted that back on August 3rd. So look for that. Say it with me wherever you get your podcasts. <laughs> so we have two guests on the show tonight. One is our good friend, Adam, who's been a longtime listener and is fascinated with all things astonishing. And he's had quite a few interesting encounters over the years, and you'll hear about some of them tonight. Our second guest is Jeremy Kenyon Lockyer Corbell. And this guy's an artist, okay? He's a filmmaker, photographer, and on top of that, he does home renovations. <laughs> he's done it all. He loves to flip houses, he and his wife. He's a definite Renaissance man. And part of the reason we want to have him on tonight is that he's become the de facto clearinghouse for some of the most extraordinary UFO slash UAP military footage the world has ever seen. And he takes the job of vetting it while fervently protecting his sources very, very seriously, which we highly respect. He has extensive experience investigating UAP for decades now, and he is closely connected to his mentor, journalist and author, George Knapp, who co-wrote Hunt for the Skinwalker and Dreamland about Bob Lazar. We are so very fortunate to have been able to sit down with both Jeremy and Adam for two hours to ask them pretty much whatever we wanted, and the answers were candid. Not for nothing, but I actually really want to know a lot more about Bob Lazar now, that's for sure. Oh yeah, man. Me too. All right, Sarah, let's roll our discussion with Jeremy and Adam. Well, Jeremy and Adam, welcome to Astonishing Legends. We're Hello. very excited to have you. Yeah. And first off, we'd like to thank longtime listener Adam for facilitating this interview with Jeremy and also agreeing to our, participate in our roundtable discussions. Certainly welcome. Thank you so much. And we're going to talk about what Adam and Jeremy have investigated together, what brought them together, the case that made them join forces in more detail a little later on. But first off, Adam, how did you come across Astonishing Legends? And then how did you two get acquainted, you and Jeremy? I think I looked up uh, Paranormal Podcast. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm glad we're coming up in the search results, yeah. I liked the uh, the icon, you know, you guys have great artwork and stuff. <laughs> Thank and so, you. Uh, yeah, I, just, I basically just kind of dove in and I listened to a little bit of the, the, the current episode. I can't remember what it was at the time. It was a couple of years ago, but I heard enough and Neither uh, can I, we. <laughs> I immediately pa uh, paused that one and started from the beginning. Mm. What ended up happening was you guys had done a... Uh, episode with uh, Chuck Zakowski about, oh, yes. you know, the cattle mutilation phenomenon. And I had always been kind of interested in that. And um, uh, overall, you know, I mean, I watched Unsolved Mysteries a lot as a kid, stuff like that. Me and my dad, our thing used to be the X-Files, uh, for sure. Cut to maybe six months later, and uh, I was taking my son out to uh, shoot his, his BB gun for the first time. We were going to go try to shoot a rabbit because uh, we're rednecks like that. Don't worry, we ate it, too. Yeah, okay. Okay. Good. So he's got his BB gun, and we're out there at this place that we sort of lease. I guess my dad has leased it. He used to have an oil field business out there, and uh, that was the headquarters, and it's an old abandoned zinc plant. And we found a cattle mutilation. So this is kind of the abridged version right now, but we found this cow, and I wasn't sure who to, um, what to do about it. So I just, I, I looked up that Chuck Zakowski guy. I sent him an email about it and he said, great, give me the location. So I did. And that was the end of that until I heard about, or I heard Jeremy Corbell on a different podcast actually uh, with Ryan Sprague. And, um, and he was talking about, um, you know, the Skinwalker Ranch thing. And so I think he just recently released the movie Hunt for the Skinwalker at that time. So 
I went home and bought it on Amazon and I'm, I'm getting through the movie and all of a sudden they do this freeze frame on the cowskin and it was very reminiscent of what I found out there at the shop. So I, then I emailed him and he called me and I was at Walmart and I pretty much talked to him the whole time I was walking around Walmart with my wife. My wife was um, a little bit confused about why I wasn't helping with anything. But I was <laughs> So that's that's pretty much what happened, and the rest is kind of history. We've been talking about weird stuff ever since. So how how long ago was that? So it was in April 2019. I didn't find out about Jeremy until July. So by the time I made it back out there to sort of take a second look at it, cut a piece off, I cut some of the hide that had been cut with the instrument uh-huh. because I wanted to measure. There were serration marks, and I wanted to measure the distance between them. And so that was in July. And so it had been further degraded by that point. But uh, the pictures that I sent you guys are from the day that I actually found it in April. But yeah, yeah. So 2019, the cow is in many different pieces now. It's finally almost completely melted into the ground by this point. I just watched Hunt for Skinwalker for the second or third time last night. And and it's amazingly very similar to the serrated edge of the cut marks there. Yeah. Yeah, I, I could see where you'd key in on that. Like, there's something going on here. Is this the same tool? I mean, I paused the movie right then and started screaming for my family to come in and look at the television screen because it was uncanny. And when I found it laying out there, I just thought, wow, how cool is that? You know, but when I saw the, the movie and, and that thing flashed across, that's when it, that was when the hair stood up on the back of my neck for the first time. You guys have been actually talking a lot since then new developments and things you're both finding out on your own. So Jeremy, let's, let's start with you. Did it strike you as that there's some kind of connection and I got to talk to Adam about this? Yeah. I mean, first of all, I don't think anything uh, bonds you more than looking up the rectum of a dead animal together. <laughs> so uh, I just figured that would be a great experience yeah. to have with Adam. Uh, <laughs> you know. Scott and I have often said that, but we've never yeah. done, we've just never done it. Yeah. You're right. At the time, that it was going on, it was about the time where I had released this film, you know, Hunt for the Skinwalker, I think it's on Hulu. And it was a time when I was kind of confronted with this reality that there there appears to be some sort of connection between the, the UFO topic and these mutilations. And that's just by witness reports. I mean, you can't ignore what people tell you over decades. The thing that fascinated me and still does to this day, these are surgical cuts. I mean, this this is not a natural death. There's no version of reality where this is a natural death. So the idea that I could, you know, meet a a new friend and, and wow, he really like just genuinely found this and doesn't know what to do. It was kind of for me the first time I got to witness this for myself. So I thought, you know, how cool, you know, this guy really wants to know the truth, as you probably can tell. Adam's a super genuine person. And it's like. I think his enthusiasm for just finding out the truth, despite all of the things that could prevent that from religious belief to just, you know, the fear of it, it was just kind of very genuine. And so, yeah, Adam and I became good friends over time. And we do talk about weird stuff all the time now Mm -hmm. because life is weird. You know, this is the things that are happening are unexplained. And it is my self-proclaimed job, you know, to investigate the unexplained and not explain the uninvestigated, (laughs) as George Knapp says. You end up in a position where you feel like it's become my job to tell the public this needs to be known because it involves all of us. It affects all of us on this planet. So somebody should be telling everybody about this as much as is allowed. 
And so let's back up and talk about how you first got involved with this, Jeremy, and what drew you to the paranormal, to want to be a filmmaker, to want to cover these things. Well, first of all, I've just got to be very impressed. You have a black belt in jujitsu. Yeah. And you were working with Ask uh, Youth Groups in providing training for them and, uh, and a hand up. And then you, uh, you studied something in, uh, in college here in, in California. Is that correct? Yeah, yeah. I went to University of Santa Cruz, and my whole life is not how I expected it to be. You know, right. <laughs> I, uh, I started training jiu-jitsu when I was nine years old, and at the time, to train MMA, you had to tra- go to boxing class, wrestling class, judo class, jiu-jitsu class. You know, it was very fragmented. Mm-hmm. But over the years, when I was young, starting at nine years old, it was like the one thing I was good at. I get to punch people and not get in trouble. That was really the reason I liked it. Obviously, the reason you start is not the reason you stay. It really changed me as a human being. It allowed me to understand, you know, mechanics and how words are words, but actions are actions. So that was really my trajectory that I saw going, you know, forever. And I went to UC Santa Cruz. I think I took like modern dance. I was not serious (laughs) about school. You know, the thing is, is that when you're in that environment, basically I got a free dojo. I got a free place to to teach and to train. And uh, for me, it was always about learning and about studying and and bettering my own technique. But I found that by teaching jujitsu, it bettered me a hundred times fold every week. So it was almost like the teaching thing was really so I could be a better learner. And it's the same thing with UFOs. I could just study it and never broadcast anything, never say anything, never make movies, never report on anything, and just not take all the flack, you know? But I've found that by doing so, I learn more. So really, the consequence of being so curious is that you put things out there because it then feeds back in that loop to you understanding more. So the transition between martial athlete to actually artist, because I did, I had a stint in LA where I can't even draw a stick figure, but I had a really good art career. And then all of a sudden it just transformed into you're filming me for art. And that is so much cooler than what I'm doing. Will you teach me how to use a camera? That was it. You know, the second I pointed a camera at somebody I realized the camera was my passport into the secrets that people hold. It was so different. The second you point a camera at someone, they become different and they really let it out. And so that was really that transition. I just got really sick. I couldn't do jujitsu anymore. Mm. And so I started making films, but I wasn't a filmmaker yet. I started making them. I had never put anything out. Well, what was the degree in quantum studies? Is that the, the title of the degree? What does that involve? Yeah. So at the University of Santa Cruz, you pay for your education at universities. I was paying out of pocket and I wanted to bring together the things that most interested me. I did study physics and I studied quantum physics, but I also studied philosophy and anthropology, actually, very strangely. So what happened is they allowed me to generate my own major because I was paying for it. It was actually more rigorous than just taking one of the paths they already created. I had to have four professors on the board and they all had to sign off. And it was essentially the philosophy that we find within the physics of the microcosm. That's the best way I can explain it. Hmm. And it was really fun. It just allowed me to study what I wanted to at the university. And I think that process of knowing you can do what what you want, that was really neat. What inspired you about things that were starting to lean more towards the paranormal? Cattle mutilations, UFOs, things like that. 
I don't know if they're paranormal because I don't really know what that word means. They're abnormal, that's for sure. But I think maybe the word paranormal, maybe it just means things that we haven't really understood yet. So I came from a place of a really nuts and bolts position. And that's because of my martial arts career. It's like you can philosophize all day, but you get in a ring and you start throwing punches. The person, especially if they're bigger than you, you know, the person, the smaller person, let's say with the better technique, you're going to be dominant and superior and you're going to win. Someone's going to be choked out, knocked out or unconscious. So that was for me, this lesson that if the mechanics of things are important, and if you dedicate yourself to the mechanics of things, you know, in life, then it's really hard to not succeed because you're either going to learn the lesson or you're not, but it's hard to not succeed. So when we talk about these mysteries, there may be a great, simple explanation for them. We just are uneducated at this point on, on what that is. You remember, bacteria was magical before you know, we had the microscope. So I'm thinking the UFO phenomenon and all its associated phenomena, there may be very clear if we could start to understand them. Maybe I'm wrong. Hi, I'm Mike, and if you don't play this segue, Mothman will break my legs. Now, back to the show. In your project, Bob Lazar, Area 51, and Flying Saucers, which I just loved from start to finish. I thought it was amazing. I found that he was super compelling. It's weird because I think people think with uh, Forrest and I, I think they think that we're that we have knowledge on all of these, especially he's a big deal on all this stuff. But there's some things where there it's a black hole until you go to look at it. And I particularly, I like to not know anything until I go to dive, like nothing. And I didn't know a whole lot about Bob. I knew some people thought he was lying. Other people thought it was real. And I was like, your film was the absolute best way to dive into that. I just, I found him very, very compelling. And one of the things that I was going to say about how it was put together because it reminded me of times that we have talked to folks like Bob Gimlin. We certainly didn't make a film about him, but we went and talked to him in person about the Patterson Gimlin film. And you only need to spend 10 minutes with him to know that he believes everything he is saying. And this is a very real and genuine person. And that's how I felt about Bob. But also my dad is an engineer. There's some similarities in their personalities that just kind of like... Nerding out. This is my dad walked out of Ferris Bueller's Day Off. He's like, it's too ridiculous. You know, like that's where <laughs> my dad is. And I was like, oh, this guy is remind. He's like, I, you know, and I don't care if you believe me. I really thought that that was compelling. And the other thing that I liked about it was how, because this made me think of too, we covered Dyatlov Pass a while back when we were first starting out. And our show on that was rooted in a book that we had read by Donnie Icar called Dead Mountain which is an amazing book about the Yatloff Pass. But one of the things that uh, that Iker brought to that book was the humanity of those kids that disappeared. And I felt like you did a good job of doing that for Bob and making him into a person because we see that over and over and over again. Everybody's like, oh, it's a hoax. This guy's lying. That's stupid. They just want to make money. They were selling tours to the house at Kelly Hopkinsville. They were doing this. They were doing that. It's like, first of all, no one is making money. Everyone's getting harassed. They're getting made fun of. It's like coming out about this stuff there's no reward to it. There isn't one, even if the people didn't know that when they started. So I just, I thought you did a really good job of portraying that about Bob. And the whole reason I even got to that, I went off on a rant here, but like was (laughs) because when you said about bacteria, it made me think about how Bob said taking, um, I can't remember what, something back to the Victorian age. 
Yeah, he said two things, nuclear reactor. Yeah, it was a nuclear reactor. And then they would open it up and they would all die. And like, and everyone that came to check on the people that died would die. And then everyone would be like, it's magic, get away from it. And that is seems like it is what's happening now in these outer realms or whatever. I'm really glad the movie had that effect on you because you know, I wasn't trying to prove Bob's case. I, I feel no need to do that. It was more... You can uh, dehumanize a messenger and you can dismiss the message. So if I could just show people Bob was a person, that's all I wanted to know initially is like, does he believe what he's saying, right? Yes. Or is he, is he a known liar? So just to give you something beautiful to watch that doesn't try to prove to you, but takes you through the person's life, he's making coffee. It's a magic bullet. People have to start like, okay, well now I got to make up my own mind instead of like reading on the internet. And so that was kind of cool. I'm glad it had that effect. And now there's two versions of reality. One is where you look at somebody and you say, well, they believe what they're saying. And yes. that is a big step. Yeah. Like you, you get to that point where you're like, well, they believe what they're saying. And that is a leap. That's an important leap. But then there's an extra kind of level where when things start becoming corroborated, that are just over durationally, over time, in ways you, you least suspect, that's when you have to start considering that not only does he believe what he's saying, but what he's saying might be actual reality and true. And so right. that's like the next level of understanding of that case. Again, there's parallels there for us with Bob Gimlin, the Patterson Gimlin film, because when we talked to him, I was like, okay, the, he's not lying. So then the next thing is like, okay, was he tricked? Was he tricked? He was, right, wasn't right. in on it. You go deeper and deeper and deeper. And it seems like, no, it doesn't seem like he was tricked. And then you're like, okay. Now you're at that world at the end of it where you are like with Bob taking 75 polygraph tests and passing all of them. It's like, well, he took four. He took oh yeah, four. I know, but, <laughs> but it's, it's a lot Four yeah. 75, same thing. Yeah. You know? I'm surprised <laughs> you knew that Jeremy. <laughs> I knew it was four, but I like to exaggerate. Right. Normally when I bring up Bigfoot, Jeremy kind of takes the track of, you know, Oh, I, I thought you were talking about nice. Bob. I don't know. Gimlin took 75. I, no, I'm no, sorry. no, no. I was talking oh. about Bob. Yes. Okay, yes. Okay, yeah, okay. Okay. I, when, when Adam talks to me about Bigfoot, I just, I'm like, don't know, bro. Don't yeah. know. Yeah. We, well, we didn't know either until we looked into that film. But like, I don't want to sidetrack on that. Everybody, we did sure. like a five-year long series right. on it. But um, <laughs> well, it's a journey. Yeah. Yeah, it is. And that kind of research is a journey. But I was just impressed with the humanity that you brought to Bob. And I came away from watching your film pretty well convinced that he's not making things up. You know, of course, the yeah. next the next question in your mind, which he obviously has faced and you even addressed, is like, oh, is he part of, is he an unwilling participant in some kind of disinformation campaign? Because all these conspiracy theorists will say, oh, well, they tapped him out because he's well-educated. We'll show him a bunch of crazy crap. He'll go talk about it and it will deflect from real development or something like that. But we have a research group and also people that email us that are high level military folks and they respect the work that they do and the people they work around, but almost all of them to a person will say, the government's not that organized. It's not that competent, the sophisticated psyop that all the conspiracy theorists thinks are happening. They can't pull them off. With Bob Lazar, it's verifiably false, but yeah. you know, we'd have to spend time so you know I could show you what I know. We'd go into that, but it's, it's verifiably false. I will say, and Adam will be happy, the one connection between Bigfoot and Bob Lazar is that he was like the Yeti of ufology. Nobody could ever get him on camera. So yeah. that was kind of <laughs> like the that was kind of like the cool thing was as a kid, that's how I got started in UFOs. Is I heard him when I was 13 years old. And because I was kind of technical in my mind, I was, you know, it was the idea of the propulsion system he described. And it, it inversed my understanding of propulsion instead of like traditional reactionary propulsion, you push something out the back, you go forward. 
It was the idea of a gravity well, the idea of moving into time space. So that was just so cool. I didn't know if it was real or true, but I just, it really interested me. And so, I don't know, I think that that's important that we can, if we're persistent over time, get people to come forward, even if it takes 30 years. I was really grateful that, that Bob allowed me into his life because I, I said, give me your cell phone. I want to talk to everybody. I like you know, any box in your attic. I couldn't believe he said, okay. Yeah, yeah. that yeah. is just amazing. It's yeah. it's amazing too sometimes like what happens when you just ask. If you can yeah. get yeah. through to the guy, because not only do you score him, you scored Bigelow on Skinwalker. It's like Bigelow, I, he hardly ever does it. It's like he's in your thing and he was on 60 Minutes for 10 minutes, right? And then that's like- Yeah, yeah. So George Knapp did that interview actually. George Knapp has a huge archive with, with Bigelow, but it yeah. was never allowed for release, but he allowed it in that film. And I was grateful because it's important for people to hear him. Yeah, it is really amazing. We always say it's a journey. It's one thing that you brought up that's interesting because what you're describing here and what Scott is describing as well for all of us, I think. We just started off wanting to do a podcast about interesting things, not necessarily just the paranormal, but interesting history, interesting personalities and people and, and events. And then you realize a few years later that you're somewhere else along this path that's much deeper and much more involved. And now you are speaking to a lot more people than you plan to. But is that where you started, Jeremy, when you first heard Bob Lazar or you started getting interested in UFOs? And how did that lead to wanting to be a filmmaker about these subjects? Yeah, no, look, I, I never had aspirations to make films. I'm probably the least qualified person to make a film, but I'm persistent. And really, it took many years of, of getting to know Bob's friends and then talking with him. And I never pushed it on him. I just said, look, at some point, your story is going to be told by other people and it's verifiably false what they're saying. We have to untangle that just a little bit. And I think eventually he realized, you know, that was the case um, that he would, you know, at least put himself out there one last time and just tell it like it is putting stuff out. You have to bear the weight of public opinion. And I'm a very private person actually. So it's like really uncomfortable for me. So I, I kind of, I try to um, feed my mind like I feed my body. It's like I'm very intentional about what I put into my mind. And it, it was just so um, the idea that I'd be somebody putting out stuff like this was not in my really in my reality. But I think over time, as I said earlier, you realize that by doing that, you will learn so much more. More people will come forward. To you. If your work is genuine and your intent is genuine, uh, there's really no stopping you. So that's how I, I learned how to make movies by making my first movies. Like mm -hmm. I, I was always calling people, what's ISO? Well, I still don't understand it. So <laughs> it's like, if I can do it, anybody can do it. And I would encourage people to not limit themselves because everybody else will tell you what you can't do. And they're going to be way better at telling you what you can't do than, than you are at telling yourself what you can't do. So look, if I can do it, Anybody can do it. And I just do it because simply I learn more. And movies are really fun. This is what Scott and I were marveling at. And we know you're so busy. That's why we were extra appreciative of you being able to come on. Because you're like the one main focal point for public dissemination of the current disclosure happenings going on now. Did you ever see that yourself becoming fit for that role or heading that way when you start to make your documentaries and then you start to release clips it's like is it just because of the people in the know that start coming to you with information allowing you to disseminate that or how does that path go because that also interests us 
how do you get to where you are now in the media being one of the main portals of information? I've never worked for a government. Let's just put this all on mm -hmm. the table. I've never worked <laughs> for a government agency. No government agency is giving me footage. This whole experience that you're seeing is over 10 years of true gumshoe reporting, investigative reporting. Luckily, I've got George Knapp in my corner. He's been an incredible mentor, has allowed me to figure out ways and, and verify information. Like I couldn't have done these releases without him because I get sent stuff every day and uh, to vet it and verify it. People think I just like get something, put it up on YouTube. It takes years. I am so confident with what I put out that I would put my life on it, that what I say is accurate. That's how confident I am. So over the years, and remember, there were specific things that I did that allowed people to come forward to me. So I held the secret of the Tic Tac UFO encounter until I broke it just prior to the New York Times article. Commander David Fravor and I were talking for years prior to that, and he didn't want the public attention, and I respected that. So people started to hear that if you really have sensitive information, the chain of command is broken. You know, there's this guy, Jeremy, and he'll treat it well. He won't just like jump and try to put it out. He'll vet you, but he will be kind about it and he'll be clear about it and that you can go to him. And so I kind of think that that experience and then the next experience, they all led up to people feeling like, I'm not going to out them. I'm not going to put them in harm's way because a lot of these people have risked a lot to get me this footage. The ways they did it, it was out of frustration. It, it's not the way that it should be. There should be a chain of command. I'll tell you, the Pentagon didn't even have some of or a lot of the footage that I've released until I started doing this. Like they got it after. And that's a problem. That's a real problem that the Senate Intelligence Committee would get this after a journalist did. Yeah. So that whole process is because there's a break in the link of the custody and chain of command and how people have been stigmatized with the UAP topic. Luckily, that is changing. And, and no, I never saw myself here, although I did decide this was the time to do this. I had this footage and have other footage for a long time. The thing is, is I need to feel confident with it. I need to have all my ducks in a row and then make sure that when I put something out, that is absolutely accurate and it is impenetrable. And so people will be upset, like, well, why don't you just put everything out now? Well, I'm still vetting everything. Hold up. And people can't consume it that quickly. Did people really understand what a FLIR camera was for the first few years, the gimbal and go fast and, and Tic Tac videos were out? No, they didn't. It takes people time to understand the power and the gravity of what they're looking at. So I guess to summarize what we're talking about. Yeah. This is a path that I chose. I chose to put this out. I chose every interview I did. I chose to do it. I couldn't keep up with it. So I tried to choose the right ones that would have the most bang for the buck because I'm one person. I would never sleep if I did every interview. And I really hope it's contributed to the collective questions that people should be asking about these mysteries, including the UFO topic. Do you worry now because I would, if I was in your position, because we do investigative stuff too, nowhere near on par with you, but like we're very careful about what we vet and who we talk to and how we treat our eyewitnesses and all that kind of stuff. Do you worry at this point, because you're so high profile, that there might be an effort to discredit you and that it, someone will send you something that after you've shared it, they themselves, whether they represent an individual or an organization, will later undermine that to make you look bad? Yeah, yeah. It happens every week. 
absolutely. It happens every, everybody wants me to trip. Everybody wants me to fall, slam yeah. on my face. Everybody wants that. Not only the government, but also just like Twitter. You know, they would love that. Yeah, so, especially uh, Twitter. Especially <laughs> Twitter. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Apparently, I don't read it anymore, but yeah. So without this like cloak and dagger thing, see, one day maybe this can be told, but it's not like there's a shadowy individual who's leaking me a bunch of information. It's not like the government is passing me stuff, being like, good job, here's a paycheck. This is like built on a foundation of over a decade of trust and people I know. I'm very clear with each and every source, which there is just so many that like, there's no way to pin it down. So in a way it protects the way that I get information and I am careful. I try to protect sources even if they don't try to protect themselves, which happens like all the time, Mm -hmm. right? But ultimately, of course, we know this from history. There are attempts within disinformation groups So really, they're trying to control the narrative. So not only is it people that will give you false information to wrap that around on you later, and and government's employed for sure, but additionally, there's people that will try to help you because they want to be able to control the narrative. It's really simple. Like we have historic record of this. This is not something I'm making up. This is something that's been done for a long time, even within the UFO community. Anytime... You can control a popular issue as an information and intelligence agency, you've won. So you have to look at it that there's positive and negative attempts to control the narrative through people such as myself. You know, if you're going on the news, like they'd love to control it. But really, I'm kind of impervious to it because I've kept my circles of trust really tight and I have so many ways to verify stuff that are unknown to the majority of agencies that would want to control that narrative. Well, let's talk about the latest, which I'm sure a lot of people are are anxious to hear about. The latest clips that I've heard, the latest blips and news, certainly a lot of clips that pop up also on YouTube. There's a lot of information out there. And of course, a lot of listeners will tell us, it's like, hey, have you heard the latest? Like, yes, uh, we've been getting people sending us these various clips. I think the latest trend now is that these are now verifiable by Navy personnel, submariners, electronics warfare officer on a battleship saw a tic-tac, pretty much the same tic-tac, fly through the air, go right into the water and become a USO or it was always a USO. It's now being detected underneath uh, the waves by submarine detection. So that's kind of the latest that we've heard. Is there anything else new? UFOs have been documented to be under the water and moving at incredibly high speeds by our military for decades, like since we've had that kind of technology. I can't speak upon one individual source's description that I've never met or anything. I can talk about Commander Fravor, Commander Mm -hmm. Underwood, the people that I work with. But you hear those stories and that's really great. But what I'd like to just encapsulate for us because there's a lot of misconception. Sure. And it's sad to me because, man, I've like tried to task the, you know, UFO Twitter and everybody to like get active and do stuff to help. So let me just encapsulate what I've tried to do over the last few months. Very slowly, I've been building the archive of visual data and information for the public about a unique series, one specific series of UFO events that have now been confirmed, separate from what you talked about, Mm -hmm. because that hasn't been, the stuff I put out has been. And so let's talk about that real quick. So I released a green video 
they look like triangles, but yes. they were actually from classified documents that I was exposed to, pyramidal in shape. Now, doesn't matter. They look like triangles. But that's the green video you saw. And it's from right. USS Russell, 2019, July 15th. Then the next clip I, I released, I actually released two briefing slides that were contained within classified documents. However, they were inherently unclassified. That's what the U means in that. So I was very careful. I obtained those and I re released those. And those show that that green event and this other black and white event through a FLIR camera, thermal camera on another ship called the USS Omaha, they were part of the US government's UFO investigations. And then I'm like, bam, here's the video of that object in the FLIR, the black and white, where you see a spherical shaped UFO that goes, apparently looks like it goes into the water and they search for it with a submarine. So I released all of that information. And then by the way, that's when the UAPTF, the UAP task force actually got some of that information, but they didn't have the complete stuff. They had the images, not the video. So it's kind of good I do this work, right? <laughs> yeah. So then they didn't think so at first and then they came around. <laughs> so then I released something the world has never seen before, which is corroborative sensor data tied to FLIR visual data, which was the radar screen from yes. inside the CIC, which is the Combat Information Center. It's a, a classified room, all this stuff, but I, I was legally able to do it because I obtained everything and it was inherently unclassified because it was a, a navigation radar. But what I provided was corroborative visual and um, systems data evidence. And again, there's no example of this yet in history and it's all coming out really quick. Right. And then icing on the cake, for me, it was the least visually stunning video, which is the inky black with the red lights. Yes. But I said, this is from the deck of the USS Omaha on July 15th, 2019. And it was shot by the same Viper, the visual intelligence mm -hmm. personnel team. So interestingly enough, the Pentagon confirmed the green video, confirmed the, the slides, confirmed the black and white video, confirmed the radar video. And then they jammed me up on that last piece of footage. And if it's intentional, they're going to have a big problem because I have a hundred ways to make this absolutely clear that this is exactly as I said from the deck of the USS Omaha. And why is that important? It's just a black night sky and, you know, they have a video camera, they're clicking on it and they're moving in. Okay. People miss the plot here. They should be fighting to ask the Pentagon spokeswoman who talks about UAPs if this is indeed from the USS Omaha, the same series of events. Instead, they're screaming and crying about how it's, oh, it's no better than any footage that was ever shown. Well, that's because you haven't done your job. You haven't pushed your government for answers. You're jumping on Twitter instead of jumping on emails. Yeah. That is the job of the American people if they want to know the truth, if they just want to scream and cry about it. Good, I don't read Twitter anymore. So here's the deal, man. What I tried to do was paint a picture at this time where it is undeniable, the United States government has to confirm this information so that people can get proactive in knowing that our government has more information and that we deserve to know the truth. But really it's our right and it's our duty to find out. Just to encapsulate it, I want you to understand the gravity of why I'm spending sleepless nights doing tons of interviews is because I think this is really important. It set the standard for our government responding to the American people. It seems to me, in light of the somewhat anemic nine-page report that came out, which I know was only 120 days, people, you can't get a report together 
it seems to me that you're a more valuable source of information at this point and also applying more pressure to them to verify and come forward about what's happening versus that very short report that went to Congress. What do you think about that? It takes all angles, right? You can't just expect a government agency or an intelligence agency to crack the books on all the secrets they have about UFOs. I mean, that report is anemic, as you said, but in some ways, it's a huge leap forward. And let me give you an example. It talks about, since 2004 to present day, military encounters. I think it talked about 144, where one was explained. Okay, great. So you have 143 unexplained, but like current, contemporary, modern day military study. Now, out of those, 80 of them had multiple sensor data on it. So multiple types of sensor data. So what that means is it's not like a glitch on the radar. They're actual physical objects. The others might be as well, but that's like confirmed. And then it says, I think 18 out of them, they demonstrated technical capabilities that are beyond next generation technology. So like what Commander Fravor saw, where he saw this wingless, rotorless, you know, no control surfaces, the Tic Tac UFO come up and then instantly, bam, and it's 60 miles away at his cap point where he's supposed to go next. Like 18 of them showed characteristics that showed an advanced technology. So even though it was anemic in some ways, I thought they they did such a great job of giving you these big statements that like, we don't know, like we need more investigation. Yeah. Do you get a sense that they're more concerned that it's foreign technology as opposed to technology that's non-human? Well, either would be foreign technology to us, right? But uh, I will shoot you straight on this, which is nobody believes this is Russia or China. Nobody. I mean, (laughs) everybody working on this, like from the inside, they know with certainty, you know, there might be one or two that is like some sort of weird drone that was created. But like, we're talking about the real cases. Nobody believes that. They, They leave the door open because it gets funding. Like if you can identify an enemy, an adversarial nation, you'll get funding for a, a permanent UFO program, no problem. If you're like, we don't know who these are from, it's like, well, maybe it's not important then. So yeah. they were really smart by keeping that door open. In one of your latest interviews, I saw you know for certain, at least officials have come forward to you saying that we do have recovered technology, artifacts, physical oh, things. Full craft. And, and this is not just based on Lazar. You know, this is a cumulative position that I'm taking with absolute certainty. And that's an interesting thing. When someone says absolute certainty, you know, they've got good reason for saying that. And so from my position, I do not have the luxury of disbelief. We do have recovered technology that is from somewhere else and not just military individuals, but also like titans of industry have been given access to some of these I'll say, mechanics and materials. This is not something I'm saying. Look mm-hmm. at what Senator Harry Reid talked about. He pointed the finger at Lockheed. That, that is correct information. Lockheed does have some of the technology. And then you, you think about uh, you know, Robert Bigelow. And Robert Bigelow had to retrofit his buildings for millions of dollars so they could hold classified materials. I don't know if he ever did, you know, hold them at at Bigelow Aerospace, but I'm saying there's a lot of indicators of people that you could go look at. So it's not just like the crazy guy with the beard, shorter than Adams, but still crazy guy with the beard. (laughs) Um, You know, take it for how you want. You know, imagine it like someone pointing a finger, like, you know, you can 
decide to look or not look, but I, I, I look at that, I am highly, I'm beyond highly confident. Hello everyone, I'm Grit Gray, and this is Astonishing Legend. Now back to the show. Did you ever ask Bob Lazar what he thought the the limitations in terms of physics were based on the the gravity propulsion system that he described? Because when you think about this, what's interesting to me about the way these craft appear to move was the whole idea of getting pulled forward, which is a basic lift principle. That's fluid dynamics. That's how an airplane wing works. How, when you're sailing, the wind's not pushing the sail. The low pressure on the front of it is pulling you forward. So it's like, I can actually grasp that as now we're trying to manipulate gravity. Here's another thing that was really interesting. I don't know if you've ever heard of uh, Terry Lovelace, but he's had a particularly well-detailed abduction experience. We had him on our show, did an interview with him. And one of the things that he talked about was how the craft at one point, it rotated, it did that 90 degree rotation to approach them, which was exactly what yeah. it just keeps coming up about how the belly, Bob says the belly points towards the target. At, at low speeds. Yeah. And that's this whole thing that like you start, when you're doing all this, as long as we've been doing it and you've been doing it or whatever, you start to see these threads and all these people have never even heard each other's stories. Yeah. And that's when you're like, okay, something is happening here. It also helps you determine which stories, if they're completely on their own, whereas when they have these common threads, you're more inclined to think, okay, this is part of the phenomena, overall phenomena, whatever it is, you know? That's a really interesting, I'd never heard that metaphor about propulsion. I, I never thought about it where you have a sail. Yes. Um, but but I, I will argue that it's still reactionary propulsion because even though it's pushing into the sail, that force, it's pushing back. And so that's why it's going forward. So right. we, have, we really have to look at what Bob said. It, it's completely opposite. He always said, like, imagine you put like a bowling ball on a mattress, push your fist down yes. on the mattress, and the bowling ball falls towards it. Right. So right. it's a completely different type. That's what originally interested me in all of this. Bob will tell you he is making his best assessment of how the technology that he physically had hands on like how it worked, you know, he doesn't know for certain with this stuff. I mean, besides certain things, you know, that it was element 115-ish, right? Right. So it's like, I, I really respect that about Bob. Like, uh, if you believe a story or not, he doesn't care. And no longer do I care. But the, the idea that he knows what he's had his hands on, what he's worked on, he's certain on certain, very specific things and other things, you know, he read it or heard it and he, he doesn't know. But uh, that propulsion aspect, and you originally started your question with like the limitations of it. Yeah, is it interstellar? Is it going from point yeah. A to point B? Is it the wrinkle in time thing where you fold the paper and poke the hole through? Because I know with Fravor, it, like you said, it went, not only did it shoot 60 miles away, it was also the point where he was supposed to go to. So there's some sentient thing going on there. But in addition to that, what I'm trying to figure out is, is it coming literally from across the galaxy and it has to hit every point in between? Or is it blinking in and out of existence? And I wondered if Lazar had an opinion on that, I guess. Such a, a deep question because there's some real specifics here. But let's just start with this. Like Lazar said, I don't know. They they said where the craft was from and all this stuff. But he goes, I, I don't know that. They just, they, you know, I read it and they said it. He goes, but looking at the craft, it was obvious that this craft could be interstellar. Like it could go in the in the low powered mode and just work off of the gravity based on Earth, where it's kind of like a ping pong ball floating on water. And it's like utilizing the gravitational field of the Earth to kind of hover. 
but in high power mode, when it flips on the belly, it points to three generators at one point. And he said, there's no reason this craft couldn't be interstellar because it does move you in his understanding of it through time space almost instantaneously. But I say almost because there was actually a frequency to the gravity wave. This is very not known by anybody looking into this, but there was an actual frequency, a rhythm to it. So in essence, it's imperceivable to you if you were in it, I'm sure, but you're like, you are doing these jumps as you go. So it's not like one place there you are, the other place there you are, and you expand the piece of paper, like in that version you were talking about, right. the rubber band. Right. There is these incremental leaps, but it's so tiny. It's not that you would uh, truly experience that. So that's the way Bob understood the craft to work. But I will say this about the cap point with Commander Fravor. When people see these things move away, and optically, it's like instantaneous, like a bullet out of gun. And then all of a sudden, within 60 seconds, it's 60 miles away at the cap point. The argument that people will make is that, well, the radar itself was only picking it up and pinged it at that moment. It might have been there the mm. whole time. Additionally, when he saw the Tic Tac moving over the object that was under the water, he said it looked like a ping pong ball in, a, in an empty cup, of, you know, clear glass. It's going no inertial effects. It's not exploding because of inertial effects. Now, everybody's like, wow, that's really cool. The materials must be really cool and it doesn't explode, but people would become jelly inside. No, no, you're not understanding. If it's moving like that, it's a temporal gravitational distortion. It's the only way that everybody actually knows that they're gravity based engines. Anybody that I've ever talked with that has worked in these exploitation programs, they know they're gravity based. So, what you're seeing though, is not necessarily what's happening right. because it could be a temporal distortion and you're looking at it and for them, they might just be chilling, moving yeah. slow. Yeah, right. that's such a common uh, description with people seeing UFOs is that falling leaf pattern. You hear that a lot yeah, where it's yeah. just slowly coming back and forth. It's kind of hypnotic. People viewing it have described a hypnotic feeling of just this thing kind of lulling. And then you, you think, but that's how we think. Uh, we think of gravity, it's like, well, I'd be, I'd be seasick inside. It's like their perspective would be vastly different, of course. Whatever than, their than version yours. of 1G is, is constant for them as passengers in the craft. Okay, I'll ask this question, uh, which has been on my mind since the beginning, because I've been tracking how people react to what Jeremy has been putting out there. And for all of us, like Scott and Adam, when we say stuff, we know what the kind of reaction we get, which is not always positive. And as I say to our audience and to Scott all the time, it's like I've learned probably more about human behavior, sociology, psychology, and just how people tick than I have the paranormal. Judging by how people react to this, well, that's what's important because we don't live in a vacuum. It affects all of us. And how we react to it is as much an important part of this as the phenomenon itself. So, so Jeremy, like, what's one of the biggest criticisms that you get from things that you're talking about because we see this and it's funny like when you first brought it up people armchair experts are getting on reddit and they're saying like well you know maybe these pilots didn't know what they were looking at because you know they're, they're they certainly don't get any training in electronic warfare analysis and and operating their their equipment and then you have optical electrical engineers chiming in on your behalf saying like no i i work for a company that makes this stuff <laughs> someplace like raytheon and I supporting yeah. what you're saying. So what's one of the biggest uh, few criticisms that you get? And what would be your counter to that to set the record straight? It's usually about my beard or something. <laughs> Obviously, Adam's sure, got, got it down. Yeah. Uh, 
like an actual criticism? I mean, usually people are just like, you're a liar, mm-hmm. you're, you know, this, you're that. It, it's usually not like an actual criticism. It's just mm, uh, it's anger, dissatisfaction. Right. Why are you holding videos? Why are you releasing crap videos? I mean, it's just like people are just like, yeah. they're not happy. I don't <laughs> think they have love in their life. I mean, I just... <laughs> I don't know. I, you know. Yes, I would agree with all of that because that's what, well, it, yeah, it falls in line with a lot of what we get where they may have some technical things, but you're you're arguing about the unknown. It's like nobody has the right answer yet. Some do, but we don't know them and they're not coming forward quite yet. But when they people do complain, you do sense that this stuff upsets people. It rocks your belief system. You're going to have to change everything. One piece of technology, as Bob Lazar was saying, it's like this changes the world with energy, economics, everything. Yeah, and it's it's much easier for people to, instead of look into something and try to conceive of it from a a data-rich perspective where you've really looked through the information and you've, you've asked intelligent questions and you're starting to build your knowledge base of whether you agree with this or not agree with it or you think it's solid evidence or not, it's much easier to be like, you idiot. <laughs> so I think um, it's laziness, but that's okay. I, I am impervious to evil. It's something that I've like learned a long time ago. I just like, you know, it doesn't affect me in the way that it, I think they're intending to affect me. You know, at some point, it's just too much in my head. Like I just like will see too many negative things. You know, yeah. people dox me and my phone number and my wife's phone number. It's horrible. So you have to learn how to shield yourself from the criticisms that are not helpful and and don't help you learn more and then take the criticisms in that help you be a better presenter investigator or human being like that's it's a hard thing to do but the, the main thing is this is there's nobody no stranger that has walked a mile in my shoes i mean that's like the saying so their value and opinion of me, it means a lot less than my wife's, my family's, or my dog's. My dog's opinion is very important. Yes. Riley's. His opinion matters every day. Right? <laughs> I don't know exactly what the question is. I mean, we can go over like a specific thing that people want to know the answer to that maybe I haven't thoroughly explained. But usually mm-hmm. the criticisms are like um, just irrelevant, yeah. like completely and utterly irrelevant. Water like off a duck's back. I could see with Bob too, like his, whenever you were talking to him, especially after you got done with the film and you're coming back on YouTube and asking him to look at the Fravor footage and that stuff, you can see the engineer scientist in him, how he's gatekeeping because of all the things that have kicked back on him that he said. So he's like, yeah. yeah. And so it affects his whole, the way he speaks. I asked him about that. He's like, how could it, I think it's in my movie when we're building the fireworks, maybe he goes like, He's like, how can it not affect you? He's like, it. of course it's affected the way every single word I say has been dissected to a place of utter nonsense. He's like, there's an anger there over 30 years. Now, I haven't experienced 30 years of it, but I'm doing something smart, which is completely tuning out the things that don't matter. I'm doing my best to do that because um, you can't alter your behavior based upon the expectations of others. You're not being true to yourself with that. Now, you can better yourself. I under I believe that, but if you stop from doing something that you think is important, you're going to hate yourself for that. I couldn't agree more. By the way, I, before we we because we want to talk about this path where you and Adam uh, have crossed because this is a very interesting story. But just before we get to that, I did want to ask you about one scene in the film with Lazar 
which is the one that uh, preceded the FBI raid, where you had said uh, that they referenced a conversation that you guys had out in the woods. You even made a point of leaving this footage where you said, we're going to take the phones and go put them over here. Like, yeah. how far away were the phones? How do you think they gathered that conversation? How do you think they burned that conversation? This has been a, a subject of just utter frustration for years, you know, for me and Bob and, and, and some of the people I consulted with, you know, who do reconnaissance for federal agencies. And it turns out it's not that hard to do that. So just to be very clear, in case your audience doesn't know, this is the one time where I felt my privacy was impeded upon and then that there was a, a very intentional campaign to try to muddy the waters. And that was new to me. I had never, you know, you hear about it, but like you never really believe it until it happens to you. And then you're like, wow, people do care. So to clarify for everybody, I'm filming with Bob for years and we wanted to have a private conversation, but we wanted it documented. I wanted the whole thing documented and I wanted to have it so that no matter what, one day that's coming out. And it was a really trusting situation from Bob, but we had known each other for years now. So we go to this forest area right on his property, though, at the time when he was living in Michigan. And we start talking and it's like, you know, I've got the camera that it's recording directly there. And I go, it was kind of like a joke. I was like, whoa, whoa, whoa. Hey, Bob, I'm not paranoid, but just in case, let's like move the phones. Right. And Bob, I think I put it in the movie. You can see his reaction. It was kind of like, Okay, you know, we, we didn't really believe this was an issue. Bob even said something funny. He was like, Jeremy, it's been like at the time, maybe 20. Oh, know. yeah. He said, I think he said 30 years or something. Yeah. They don't care about me anymore. Yeah. Well, little did we know, we found out later, I'm jumping ahead a little, but they were surveilling his property where we were and his place of business on that day. Mm. Federal agencies that we have documents that show this. Now they're saying it was for another reason. But the fact remains that they had a warrant for both his house and his property. And there were agents in the town and they were deciding which one to raid. So even though it was like the, the old saying, you, you know, even if you're paranoid, doesn't mean they're not after you. Yeah. Like it, it's so funny. So I took the phones and I put them at a very reasonable distance. So, you know, 200, 300 uh, meters. I mean, it was it was far away. And I think I shut them off too. And then, you know, come back and we, and we do the filming. And so in my movie, I was never intending, that's like a tease to put that in the movie, but it was my only weapon or defense against the fact I wanted people to know that the raid was real. Right. Because what happened was after I mentioned it, everybody said, I paid actors. He was never raided. I paid actors. It was all BS. I mean, gosh, I wish I, I was that creative, you know? Um, <laughs> I was back home and I went to go visit my mom and I saw the text come in and I had just been waking up and I was like, oh my gosh, Bob was raided. And she takes this moment. She's like, that's really good for your movie. <laughs> and I'm like, oh, what are you thinking? I was like, my mom is such a gangster. I, I, didn't, I was so worried. Yeah. You know, I didn't understand what was going on. I really, I didn't understand what was going on. Yeah. So what happens is, look, um, there's a federal agency. They came in and, and they raided Bob's place. They, they gridded out. There were like 27 plus agents. He took some sly photos. But how we know that conversation was documented. And there were other employees, by the way, who were there. So this is not like one man's word. Right. They recorded that conversation is what I'll say. Yeah. They had complete documentation of that conversation. But they wouldn't have to have raided him if they had heard the whole thing 
So what was interesting was that their knowledge base went right up to the point where I moved the phone. So I figured it was from the phones, but the only people that deal with the phones is the NSA and it's the, and you have to have a FISA warrant. And if you've ever asked the NSA for a FISA warrant, who would ever do that? But if you did, <laughs> they would say, can't confirm nor deny. They, they never admit it. So there's no way we're ever going to find out how that happened, if it was a legal process or not. But he was raided. They said it was for a material you know, that was used in a murder for like a case. Now, remember, Bob Lazar has been raided multiple times. The whole point is this. If Bob Lazar is telling you the truth, then you can see what happened through a lens or a prism that makes more sense. If he's not telling you the truth, this stuff is weird. Why is it happening to Bob? Your two latest documentaries that I believe are out, uh, Hunt for the Skinwalkers on Tubi. That's where I saw it. And oh, it's on. Oh, really? It is. Yeah, yeah I know it's on Hulu too. Yeah, right. And then the Bob Lazar documentary. I just I bought it on uh, Amazon, and it's great to own it. Okay, check them out there, folks. But in the connection between the two films, that was one question I had while watching both, and while making notes of questions to ask you. What is the connection to the high strangeness, the overall phenomenon? What is, the, you know, we are always tinkering with the idea of the connection point, the universal theory between the paranormal and all of its various forms. And that's one question you asked at the end, uh, towards the end of Hunt for the Skinwalker, and you asked it to George Knapp is, what is the connection between Skinwalker Ranch and UFOs and cattle mutilations and all of this weird stuff that's going on that seems so disparate but there is a through line. Skinwalker seems to tie so many things together. It was a mind-blowing thing for us when we covered it. For me especially, I was like, right. talk about the kitchen sink. I mean, it's just like everything. If I remember correctly, and I made a note of what George said at the end, he was a little coy about it, saying that Bass was really, that's the bigger project where that's a public study. And then, and again, I think the uh, the acronym stands for, is it Bigelow Air Advanced Aerospace Space Studies? By now, we know uh, NIDS, the uh, National Institute for Discovery Science, also funded by Bigelow, but also uh, not many people don't think, I guess they're not thinking about the Bass project. And George Knapp hinted at that being a bigger, wider reaching and more secretive because, you know, I just thought about this. Now that UFOs are coming into the mainstream and people are saying, well, I guess there's something out there that our own government is saying, when I think about it, cattle mutilations and the high strangeness is even higher secret. <laughs> it's, it's even a higher, bigger, darker, blacker secret than now these Tic Tacs are. So what do you think is going on here? What's the connection? Yeah, let me, let me break it down to you. And all roads lead to um, a mutilated animal's rectum with right. mine and Adam's head in it. So everybody, don't <laughs> worry, we're going to get there. But let me break this down for you really simply. First of all, that movie, Hunt for the Skinwalker, remember, I made that right before the announcement by the New York Times, before this explosion of information where everybody knew about A-Tip and OSAP. You know, George and I knew. You know, we had to be careful of saying it. So you, the first scene in the movie George is saying something's about to happen. And I put the dates in there. And sure enough, it did. That's what changed the world about all of this. And ATIP and OSAP were eventually identified. So here's the breakdown to get people up to date so they understand what the significance of Skinwalker Ranch is. Because for me, it was a challenge to really understand it. And I still struggle with it because it, it, it does include so many different types of phenomena. And I was just interested in the UFO phenomena. 
but I couldn't any longer dismiss these connections. And it was it remains uncomfortable for me. But here's what happened. Robert Bigelow bought a ranch, Skinwalker Ranch. He started something called NIDS, the National Institute of Discovery Science. And it was to study, really, it was to study uh, UFOs because that's what was seen at the ranch. And so what a great living laboratory. It's not like the boundaries of the ranch have anything to do with it. It's the whole Uinta Basin, but he's got a living laboratory. Great. So he does that for a long time, almost a decade. And then all of a sudden, some people at the DIA, the Defense Intelligence Agency, read George Knapp's book. And they had already had, you know, numerous things going on in the, with the unknown, let's say. So then they ask, because of George's book, to go to the ranch. They ask Bigelow. Bigelow gives one of those agents access to the ranch. And within minutes, the guy has an experience. So they initiate a contract under what's called OSAP. So they talk with Harry Reid and they do this black budget study that's focused on UFOs, but associated phenomenon. And that was called OSAP, Advanced Aerospace Weapon Systems Applications Program. So that UFO program, the mother program. Now, what happens from there is they create a contract for who is going to study this. And not only was Bigelow the most qualified, he wasn't the only bidder, I don't think, but he was the most qualified, but he was willing to throw his own money into it as well to retrofit his buildings, like I said before, to house certain materials. So then you've got the creation of BASS, Bigelow Advanced Aerospace Space Studies. And that was what was beholden to the American government's uh, contract of OSAP, which was the um, DIA contract. So that's a study that then went on for uh, numerous years. We then hear about ATIP. And ATIP was a loosely knit group of people that learned from OSAP and kind of coexisted at one time, but they were focused on military encounters. It was not well-funded, but that's where Lou Elizondo comes in, and, and that's the work that he was doing. His own boss didn't even know he was doing, but now it's verified. Everybody said, oh, Lou's lying until George Knapps released the documents and Harry Reid writes a letter. Right. Then all of a sudden, everybody understands Lou's telling the truth. So the whole point of this, your government was studying UFOs in its infinite wisdom. It was studying the true path, which is it leads you to other phenomena. They express themselves at Skinwalker Ranch, but also throughout history. So the cattle mutilation mystery, which leads us to me and Adam, right? The cattle mutilation mystery, it was really something that, look, no one has ever been caught. These are surgically tooled cuts. The blood is drained. The cheeks are cut out. Whatever the details are that happens with some of them, this is not natural. No one has ever been caught. No suspect has ever been brought to justice or even identified as a suspect. And it's been happening for decades, if not centuries. Now, why is this related to UFOs? I, I don't know for sure that it is, other than hundreds upon hundreds, if not thousands of witnesses saying when these mutilations occur, there's often UFOs in the vicinity. So you have to at least see a correlation that needs to be looked at. Now, that's not what Adam and I were doing. We were just looking at the carcass itself, but it's like, that's the association. So it leads you to all of these uncomfortable questions, which is that, is the universe a bigger place than we recognize? And not just like outward expanding. I mean, is there a fabric of reality that we believe to be real, but is only a boundary or a barrier to a deeper reality? And sometimes does it get like perforated and you can get a glimpse through. Is it artificial in its intelligence? 
Or is it something more akin to spirituality? Or are these just, you know, aliens from other planets, you know, making you see what you want to see? You know, I don't know. But these are interesting questions that we got to ask unless we want to put our heads in the sand and deny reality. So that's kind of where I'm coming from. That's the breakdown of Skinwalker Ranch, what it's about, how the studies came about. And it all leads to making a movie and then, which was ahead of its time because we couldn't even say the names of the programs. And then Adam, you know, recognizing that there are similarities with the shocking thing that he and his son stumbled upon and then our developed friendship where we ended up feeling comfortable enough to go inside a cow together. <laughs> well, it's, that's the, the mark of a true friendship when you feel that comfortable uh, with each cramped. other. It, it's pretty cramped. But Adam, what, what did you first think? There's one scene, that's, and it's pretty graphic in the film, but it, it you need to see it in Hunt for the Skinwalker. And, you know, people that care about animals as well as, as all of us do here, it was kind of heartbreaking because it's a young calf, uh, a new calf that hadn't been tent yet. And the, the mother seemed to be injured and she was limping around wailing for her baby. And this thing is basically just taken apart and splayed on the ground in an unnatural, all spread eagle, if you will, fashion on the ground. And when you look at it, it's immediate that this is not just a natural death. So Adam, when you, when you saw it, when you came upon that carcass, like what were your first thoughts? Was it just like, oh, here's, here's a dead cow? Or was, was it immediately, something's wrong about this? So when I first came up on it, I've, I saw it from a long way away, and um, every every time I see a cow skull that has horns, I just grab it, and yeah. uh, we kind of have a place where we let them bleach out or whatever, and then we don't ever really do anything with them, but they're fun to have. I saw this thing out there, and I saw a horn sticking up, you know, and so I knew that it had horns still on it, and it looked like it still had the cap, you know, the uh, the keratin or whatever it is, you yeah. know, that... Uh, the bones underneath that, but whatever. Right. Um, okay, so we still had those, and usually predators will, or coyotes will chew those up uh, really quickly. Ended up still having both of them, so I was like, oh, cool, you know, I'll, uh, I'll go over there and rip the head off this thing and put it on the little pedestal that we have. So I'm over there, and I'm like, yeah, you know, the light's pretty good for photography right now. I'm just going to pull out my phone and take some pictures of it, and you can kind of see the smelter in the background. You know, the smelter's actually got some pretty fun stories behind it too mm-hmm. if we have time to get into it <laughs> oh sure it's, yeah it, it's it seems haunted in itself or just a, oh, yeah. one of those weird industrial places that's a little spooky really when when i found the cow it, it sort of it brought about this feeling that like the smelter was kind of like skinwalker light because <laughs> you know no, yeah. normally yeah. you know what we've found out there uh has, has just been kind of more of like the ghostly haunting type of stuff but now there's this and it's like you know and then uh i actually Coming on the heels of finding this thing, I've actually seen some very weird things in the sky. This is in the Texas Panhandle region. Yeah, it's yeah Texas Panhandle. I mean, if you go if you go straight west, it's probably fifty minutes to New Mexico, I guess. Okay. So, no, but I was just taking pictures of the cows, so I could you know there's like three big smokestacks out there, and uh, you know I, I like to take pictures out at the shop. A lot of people do actually. That's where old abandoned you know it was abandoned in the 70s and everything's kind of falling apart and it just looks like you know something out of a zombie movie or something like that so Mm -hmm. taking pictures and i'm looking at the pictures and the head is sort of coming you know at me and you know it's laying on its left side kind of pointing out to the east wherever so it's looking into the setting sun or i'm sorry it's looking out to the west my bad and i'm noticing in the picture not actually looking at the cow but in the picture that there's just this perfect line from like where the ear 
would be all the way down, you know, the long face of the cow, all the way to the corner of the mouth. Mm -hmm. And it's just a perfectly smooth cut. And there's nothing below that except for the jawbone. Mm. And so I'm like, what? Okay, it's very obvious, you know, but I didn't notice it right at first. You know, I was, it took looking at that picture for a second to really notice it. I looked down at the cow, sure enough, it's, it's uh, you know, for sure cut with a very sharp blade in one motion. You know, the line is slightly curved, but it's one cut and it's like all the hairs. So it's like, you know, if this is the plane, the hairs come down to right there, you know, all along it. And, you know, there's, there's no hair like sticking down past it. You know what I'm, you see what I'm saying? Right, right. Almost like it was done with a lightsaber or something like that, you know. And I get to looking at the rest of the body and the hide from the bottom of the jaw has been pulled back all the way down the neck. And it's just kind of in this sock. It's sort of just laying like that. Mm -hmm. And then down below that, there's a cut that goes from sort of the, you know, the chest area all the way down to, uh, you know, like where the privates would be, I guess. And this thing's just, the whole bottom of it has just been opened up with, it looks like whatever did it made the edge of the cut skin look like a saw blade. Yeah. It's, it's serrated looking for people it's like very trying to serrated. visualize. It's a, like, yeah, like a saw, like a saw and blade. Even having been there for what I found out was almost a year before I found it. You know, I found out it was just a dried husk of hide around a skeleton. You know, there was no, there was no tissue left at all. Hi, this is Patty. You may know me from the Patterson Gimlin film. When I'm not avoiding the paparazzi, I'm listening to Astonishing Legends. Animals that are cut up and found this way aren't afterwards cleaned up by predators and scavengers right. that yeah. they leave them alone and what they've noticed before is that animals that are struck by lightning and died in an unnatural i mean it's a natural fashion but but highly rare mm -hmm. uh that they leave them alone that there's really? something that other animals can sense and like as you come across it this thing's been sitting here a year there's no scavengers no birds nothing's really touched it and no blood around it to the extent where the stomach the contents of the stomach yeah. We're still in the shape of a stomach. Yeah. Inside Whoa. yeah. Inside the rib cage. So you've got this rib cage and you can look inside it and you just see this thing that looks like a cow stomach, but it's just a big lump of grass that was just completely undigested. So that stomach rotted away around it without ever having been pulled out. And I see coyotes out there all the time. You've got bobcats out there, there's coyotes, there's stray dogs. You know, there's raccoons, there's all kinds of uh, wildlife out there. And it's like I said, even the even the caps on the horns were still there after that time. And everything loves to eat those. You know, yeah. it's like, oh, there's a nice little picture right there. So right here, you see how the all the hairs, I'm sorry, everything's backwards. That's okay. Right, all right. the hairs, oh my gosh, are coming this way. Yeah. Yes. So even after that much time, you can still sort of see that the hairs have been laid over this way as whatever it was was sort of cutting it. You know, it was almost right. like scissors were going yeah. through and pushing that back. Like mechan like maybe I picture, you know, my dad was the one that sort of came up with this idea, but he's like, 
I feel like it could have been like um, something akin to a tin, like a, a mechanical tin snip. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You know, and it's mm-hmm. just it's scissors, but they're just like brrr, right. You know, and that would that would absolutely kind of do that. You know, with the, if, if everything was so wet and pliable and fresh, you know, like I should have cut some off right then and preserved it. But by the time I made it back out, you know, it was it was degraded a lot more. The hair was almost all worn off just by weather and stuff. And uh, you couldn't see that directionality in the direction that the cut was going. But I went out, I did go out and measure it. And the distance between serrations were exactly the same as the picture that uh, that was featured in the, in the film Hunt for the Skinwalker. Now, do y'all have that picture still or... It was just a picture of my TV with it paused on that. Oh, right, right, right. I remember that. I've got it here. Yeah, that was one of the last ones. Yeah, you, I've you got it here. Us. Hang on one second. Okay, I do. But for it. people listening, I, to describe it, yeah, that's one thing I noticed is that if it were a predator chewing a line, you could say, into the hide, yeah. that hair would not be, you wouldn't think it would be pushed back like that. Like, right. it, it seems, it's very deliberate in the way yeah. that the hair, and like you said, and the hair leading right up to it, is also cut, not yeah. like it's chewed. So something sure. sliced through it. Mm-hmm. And then the other thing I want to say, I don't know if it was Eric Davis, the physicist that was on the team for NIDS uh, in the interview, or if it was uh, Colm Kelleher. The one thing that's physically does not make sense is that there's no blood around there. So if it was done on the ground, obviously there'd be blood, or there's something sucking the blood out as it's doing it. But the more logical possibility is that this thing was taken up or into a machine of some kind or a craft a machine was applied to make these cuts and excisements or incisions and remove the things and then this thing was dropped because that's the other thing that was was odd about skinwalker ranch was that they were saying the some of the cattle looked like it'd been dropped from a great height yeah from a great height right just to make it really clear to your audience to talk about what what adam's describing He's saying that with predators, you have certain signatures on the animal where a predator will have ripped out the flesh, even the hairs, they get caught in the mouth and they tear, right? Right. Adam's point here, I believe, which is accurate because I ended up taking the samples to a laboratory, an accredited laboratory in Los Angeles to look at it through scanning electron microscopy, which is just a really intense microscope. And I have photos and we'll send them to you so you can include them in here. But you can see this was done by tools, that this was unnatural. These were not tears by predators by any means. And not only that, but they were surgical grade tools. You can see under the scanning electron microscope, the absolute precision with which the angle of the hairs were cut. It is so precise, you can't do the same thing with scissors, you know? So that's what's so interesting is that this was a specialized, by the way, I mean, which is indicative of a true cattle mutilation. This is the, the, the signatures are two separate cutting tools, part of the cheek removed. Now we don't know about the tongue or the eye or the genitals, but also the body not being disturbed. And as Adam's describing the stomach contents being in the shape of a stomach, nothing's tearing out the stomach. That's like the yummiest part. So. <laughs> And the um, the rear, I'll say, yes. was yeah. perfectly surgically cored out. And you can see the flesh and how it's done. Yeah, we found the same serration marks on the uh, around the anus. Remember that? Yeah. yeah, yeah. That's where we went in. I didn't even notice that. You know, I just kind of looked and there's just a hole about that big where the there shouldn't be a hole about that big. 
Yeah. And, uh, and you got to looking at it and you said, Adam, look at this. I think that that is actually serrated too. And we got down and it was. Yeah, Which, that's that's uh, the that joke. We both went in, but we had to look. It was it was it was cored out. It was cut out, and all of this is kind of filmed and documented. And I, I haven't even showed Adam yet because I want to watch it with him. But it's yeah. like um, it's a piece that I haven't put out because it was for something else. But I I think Adam and I will will hold a viewing party at some point and we'll watch it together for the first time. But it's a forty five minute really cool piece. Anyway, it's a mystery. Look, I took it to a laboratory. Adam was very precise with how he looked at it he's not you know adam's not an overstated guy seeing it myself i was like wow this for the first time in my life i'm seeing something i really can't explain this is the the core idea of what mutilation is and there were some roadblocks i think are interesting and adam you might want to talk about that but i mean you do live in a place where there's a lot of religious belief and you were up against this idea i mean you work at your church you were up against this idea of okay, this is weird. We don't explain. How do I dance around this? How do I talk about it? I'd like to hear a little bit about that. Yeah, I'm, a, I'm actually the uh, worship director at my church. We're a non-denominational church in the Bible Belt. So, you know, it's kind of one of those communities where everybody or, you know, most people go somewhere. So when I found it, you know, I, I came in, uh, I came into church the next day and I was telling everybody about it. because so I was like, you know, I thought this was just on, you know, History Channel or whatever. And, um, no, one of the elders up here, uh, actually, I, I told him about it. And he goes, yeah, back when he was younger, back in the 70s, you know, he was working out by Clayton, New Mexico, which is only an hour and a half from here. And uh, the ranch next to the one he was working on had two bulls turn up overnight, mutilated with uh, various soft tissues and reproductive organs and tongues and eyes and ears missing. And, and then he goes on to tell me about the time that he saw a ufo you know and uh so what do you think what do you think about that you're an elder you know i'm just the music director and he was just like you know i don't know there's a lot of questions that i have for god when i get to heaven and that's just one of them and that's kind of the way i look at it and this has actually yet to yet to happen no, nobody's I, I get the you know the cheeky comment every now and then but people know that i'm like I think my pastor's wife got me a pair of socks with Bigfoot on them, you know, just recently, <laughs> yeah. uh, and stuff. And they, they know that I'm into that. And, you know, it's fun for me, you know, whatever. I grew sure. up on that stuff. So yeah. I don't discount anything just out of hand just because it's not overtly stated in the Bible, right? There are a lot of things that aren't explained in the Bible. And, you know, you can talk to any pastor or whatever and you talk to him long enough and ask them enough questions at some point they're going to say they're going to come to a point where they're like we just really don't know about that and that's something that i'm going to ask god about when i get to heaven you know if anybody ever really comes down on me about it i'm going to I'm, that's that's how i'm going to kind of explain this i'm like look there's evidence of some weird things out there you know especially you know thanks to jeremy there's a lot more evidence than there used to be but um i'm not willing to dismiss it out of hand uh, just because it goes against my belief. Maybe it doesn't go against my belief. Maybe that's just a question that I have for God. Hey, how come you didn't tell us about the UFOs? How come you didn't tell us about Bigfoot? Why isn't that in the Bible? Well, that's a question that I have for God. And I don't really feel like I need to reconcile that with my faith. I mean, I have my faith and I'm perfectly sound in that and everything else, but uh, there's more out there and, and it intrigues me. And I don't feel ashamed of that at all everybody's been supportive and uh you know i was making jokes earlier about i hope nobody comes into the office because that's where i'm at i'm at my office right now 
and uh, you know, hope nobody barges in because uh, you know it'd be it'd be worse than them telling them I was doing something else in here. But, uh, <laughs> but no, the fact is, everybody knows that I'm that I'm coming on this program because I'm I'm excited to be here. I'm excited to meet you guys. And uh, no, I go to a pretty cool church actually, so I'm blessed for that. I've uh, yeah. I've learned a lot from Adam. I just want to say real quick, I really have learned a lot. And one of the things that I learned, besides he's got a great beer, he's got great barbecue out there, and he's got a great sense of humor is that the acceptance with which Adam puts on, hey, I found evidence. I found something. I don't know what it is. I mean, he called me about it and it was like very straightforward. And so the way he handled it was just in a place of curiosity. It's really hard for people to mock that or to put you know, problems on that when Adam himself is just so genuinely curious and straightforward about it. So that's a, kind of a testament to who Adam is um, but also it shows you that how open people are, you know, despite things that you might think would be a problem for them in reconciling these mysteries, they're, they're not really there. And it's because of the way you approach it. That does say something about Adam, but it also says something about human beings. You know, we're very adaptable and curious. You were talking about Adam about the in the hunt, which I thought was, I wish that I could have shared. Of course, now you're seeing my text come in, but um, this, the the NIDs, <laughs> Uh, picture the freeze frame here and the measurements wow. on the serration, right? Which is similar to the piece that you found. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's about it's about two serrations per centimeter. And so that seems to be mm-hmm. consistent. Was that consistent on all of the on all? I can't remember at Skinwalker. Was that always there? Actually, across uh, the globe, there are typically two types of cuts on cattle mutilations. One is a serrated cut, yeah. and then the other is a very, very sharp uh, singular toothed instrument. Right. Okay. And they know they're, they're made of metal because they can show with um, mass spectrometry, they can show that there, there was a metallic tool. Right. Right. The serrated cuts, though, do they, do they look like that? Like, yeah, exactly it, like that. Really? Adam, you were right in looking and comparing. Now, obviously, sun weathering and whatnot will start to deplete each serration, but you can tell the space between. That is an absolute – see that clean cut a lot along mm-hmm. the jaw there? Mm-hmm. That yeah. is an mm-hmm. absolute classic case of cattle mutilation right there. It was um, astounding. I've never seen one in person. It's ah. just unbelievable. You know, I think I, I mentioned to you guys in our, our text chain that uh, – my dad lives in Denver, and some very close friends of his have a 100-acre ranch uh, west of Trinidad, and it's like a ground zero for Colorado there. And I guess yeah. the sheriff in Trinidad had a – or the former sheriff has files and files and files on the mutilations in the area. And they see UFOs, uh, these folks that live out on this ranch, all the time, all yeah. the time. And being the 100-acre ranch, they're the small one. It's like the one next door is the guy who invented burn beds for hospitals. It's like 200,000 acres or something. and. So it's this beautiful, pristine land, and the night sky is uh, actually the UFO observation tower is about an hour from them, uh, from where these guys are at. Oh yeah, I heard about that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. It's like just a metal yeah. thing, and they're just you go out there and stand up there one night, you'll see something. You know, like <laughs> so. It's mm. just, Your dad uh, and his friends had had seen a mutilated carcass the people at the ranch have yeah my dad hasn't and the ranch hands because they're the year rounders down there the other folks that own these other ranches you know they just come on little vacations yeah so they know all the uh the guys who run the ranches and they're the ones that have the stories the people that are working the ranch or or trying to keep it open yeah it's undeniable look when you're a rancher adam can talk more about this than i can but it's like it's not a small deal especially depending on what types of animals you're raising like animals will die 
Mm -hmm. But when you see one of your animals that was obviously tortured, I mean, I don't know if it's anesthetized, but it was, you know, killed by by somebody. This is something that, uh, you know, you can start freaking out about. I mean, somebody's come onto your property and as, as Adam said to me, you know, everybody on these ranches, they got guns, man. You got to risk a lot to come in there and just have some fascination with mutilating cows. You might just get a bullet shotgun to the chest. Yeah. So it's not like something that is low risk. But it's something that no one's ever been caught for. No suspect ever. And yeah. why these same things? I don't have answers for any of this, but got questions. There's a highway that runs right by. You can see the place. People break in all the time. They tear stuff up. They steal stuff. They've always been doing that. So like the sheriffs, they keep an extra close eye on it because right now there's nothing going on out there. It's pretty much just storage and, uh, well, you know, the occasional rabbit hunt. But even back when my dad was... Uh, working out there people would break in and you know it's kind of, it's a really cool place people like to go out there and get scared and there's a one building with a big huge basement and stuff but the thing is you can't see that cow from the highway so like there's no like hoax factor going on i mean it wasn't like right out there for everybody to see i mean i was walking around up in the plant for four or five hours before i even saw this thing i mean it's at the very back of the property you know it's on about a half section of land and, uh, you know, so it's practically half a mile off of the highway and there's enough topography that you just can't see it from the road. And so, I mean, if somebody was going to do this thing, you know, if, if a person was going to do it to try to make some sort of fuss, you know, around town or whatever, they picked a really bad spot to do it in, I guess. <laughs> you know, Jeremy can tell you about how easy it is to walk up on one of these things. The film crew was like, you know, hey, Oh, we got cows, you know, shoot the cows, shoot the cows. And, uh, and Jeremy's like, I'm going to try to walk up to one and see what happens. And then, you know, and they walked up to us because they're interested, you know, they see people normally, it means that, you know, they're going to get cake or whatever, but they're only going to get about 20 feet away. And at that point you walk up to them and they scatter, they, they spread like chickens. So yeah, this thing was just, is way back there. It's a ranch that's a ranch. It's a piece of property that's always being monitored by the sheriffs. It's a busy highway that goes out to a really busy refinery that employs like half the town. There's constantly people on that road. You're gonna be seen if you're out there, you know? And to do it like way back in the back, I just don't feel like there's any element of a hoax, you know? That was kind of the weird part about it. Jeremy, you've met Gabe Valdez, right? Yep. Uh, the sheriff near Dulce Base who's investigated a lot of these firsthand. And uh, did he have anything to say that was kind of groundbreaking? Well, I mean, for me, it was. It was one of the first interviews that I ever did. And it was just an audio interview. And it was you know, way back before I started doing anything like this. And I was just curious. And it was the last interview he did before he died. So I kind of like think, wow, that's a special. It was four hours. It's just audio. I just haven't gone into it. But he, you know, he showed me books and books and told me all about everything that every scientific test they did for decades, all the strange stuff he saw. At that point in his life, he was not only either convinced, but he was like trying to convince me all of it was government. All of it. Like he had just mm -hmm. decided all of it was government. It was easier for him to think of it that way. It didn't add up when he was talking about it. He didn't have the right answers for that. But he was trying to convince me that it was all government testing. You know, the simple answer is if you have tons of land and you've got tons of money and you want to study like biological stuff for our United States military, 
You buy your own cows. You don't sneak on in secret Delta teams and UFOs and drop down and disembowel cows and do all this stuff and then place them daintily back right where the farmer's going to find them. I mean, it, it just makes no sense. The mystery is bigger than that. So that was a cool interview because it also yeah. taught me that over time, people can try to convince themselves that the evidence adds up to something when it just doesn't. Right. Right. Mm -hmm. right. Yeah. Any, any, uh, misconceptions uh, like that you want to set the record straight on or any final thoughts from either of you? Yeah, I'd like to hear Adam's final thoughts in, in the you know six minutes we have. Um, what, what, what I will <laughs> just say is we should do it again and, yeah. um, you know, kind of go deeper yeah. into some of what Adam was has been telling you. But, you know, for this one, look, I could go all day. We could pull up a mean tweets about, you know, fake stuff that's said about me and go through it. It, it would be a waste of all of our time. You know, no, I don't work right. for the government. No, I don't have one source. No, the government's not leaking me this. No, I'm not part of some disinfo campaign. No, I'm not making a billion dollars off everything I'm doing. This is a passion project. I make my money off of real estate. You know, I, I, I literally do fix pipes and plumbing for a living the majority of the time, as well as drywall. <laughs> and I can do kitchen and cabinetry and uh, carpentry. Anyway. But can you walk on those stilts, the drywall stilts? Can you walk I on have, those? I would not trust myself. That's the one thing I would not do. <laughs> Yeah. But uh, even my martial arts experience has not taught me how to do that. What I'd like you know, people to know if they're listening to your podcast, they're interested in it, is like, I am genuinely interested in this. I, I really have a fascination for the unknown, the UFO subject. I'm, I feel very grateful I've been able to bring things forward to add to the database of actual physical evidence, the actual visual videos from within you know, our military. Look, man. I'm grateful to be able to put those out. I've got a lot more to do with that. I will be putting out a, a lot more on my terms, on my time, just because I need to vet everything. But just know that rather than going online and, and being upset about stuff, go do something. Go validate that last video that I released from the deck of the USS Omaha, because it is from the deck and it's from the Viper team. I'm not going to ask them. You got to ask them. It doesn't matter if I ask them. So I, I'd encourage everybody to get involved in some way. It's cool when... You know, you find a mutilated cow like Adam and there's a doorway into the unknown, but everybody can get involved. And so it's like, you know, you guys are doing a podcast, you're contributing. I would encourage people to get involved and not just express their disdain for it not being good enough. That would be my final thought. And I'd love to hear Adam's. Okay. <laughs> yeah, Adam, uh, any, what, what do you think about it? Because you also represent a lot of us, you know, who, who aren't filmmakers or in the media. You're just, you're just a, oh, a, 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 a stand-up guy, you know, and, and what do you think about all this stuff? <laughs> well, you know, speaking on behalf of, uh, of everybody who's not you. Um... <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Is, who looks yeah. into this stuff uh, as a pseudo profession of sorts, you know, but who has experienced it firsthand? I just think that no matter what you believe, I don't think there's anything wrong with curiosity. And I think that really it's the spice of life. You know, there's so much out there that's perfectly explainable that we just don't know yet. We don't know what the bottom of the ocean looks like. Hardly any of it, right? Yeah. Uh, you know, I mean, yeah. there's all, all these things. It's Everybody thinks the age of discovery is, has been over since like the 50s or something, right? But uh, but no, I mean, that that's just not true. And it just, I think it's a really exciting time to be alive if you're willing to just kind of peek behind the curtain a little bit. You know, maybe that one that you've just thought yourself too busy or too just wrapped up in, you know, the, the mundane 
parts of life that that you have to do. I mean, you know, you ha you have things that you have to do to survive and succeed and stuff like that. But you know, let your mind wonder when you don't have to when you don't have to think about that stuff. I think it uh, there's just more to look forward to. What am I going to learn about today? You know, these types of things. Don't hem yourself in with the that can't be true. So I'm not going to pay any attention to what that guy has to say about it type of thing. You're missing part of the point if you do that, in my opinion. I couldn't agree more. And and I've said that on the show too. I, I can't, uh, I can understand why people focus on their day-to-day -day and the mundane stuff, because that's what we all have to right. do. But you should start paying attention because the world opens up, the universe opens up to you when you start paying attention. You might even wake up one day and, you know, you're friends with some influencer like Jeremy Corbell, you know. <laughs> <laughs> exactly right. No, look, it's a real, it's a real pleasure, you guys. I, I am a, a fan of your podcast. It was a no brainer when Adam asked me, sometimes it takes a friend to ask me uh, to do something, but as long as he was coming on, the dead cow brought us together, but we become, we become <laughs> good friends and that's not going away. And so here, here. If nothing else yeah. exploring these mysteries together, it brings us closer in a lot. We learn a lot about each other. He really does have one of the best sense of humor I ever, anybody I ever met. <laughs> it's a pleasure, you guys. And I really, maybe to your audience, you know, who are probably not the people on Twitter that are just sending garbage. Your audience seems like a, a great audience. They're listening to you guys and they're interested in the unknown. So I'd recommend your audience become just proactive. If they want to see this happening more, you know, support your podcast, you know, make sure to do some work to contribute something. And I think that it engages people. We get to know each other. It's a community of people who are interested. And I think that's important. And where can our audience find, I mean, if they want to get access to your this stuff that you're vetting so thoroughly, where do they need to go? Everything is at Jeremy Corbell. My wife says I'm too findable. Um, you know, I, you know, they can <laughs> okay. message me through there, just uh, look at everything's at Jeremy Corbell. Okay. And, um, you know, hopefully if I do my job right, you know, you'll see it on the news and you'll see it in TV shows and just trying to get it out there so people can engage this information. So that, that's what I'd say. Just okay. just the two names, well, not the four yeah, yeah, names. Just the two names. I can't even stumble on the four names. That's like, <laughs> but hey, my friends and enemies call me four names. So if that's easier for you. Uh, okay. <laughs> so noted. Uh, well, thank you so much. Uh, it's been a, a tremendous pleasure, and we're going to have you all back. Great. Adam and uh, because, I got more to yeah, talk about because he do doesn't that. even know yeah. yet some of the stuff, the scientific analysis, so I'd like to talk with him about that, and you know, how better to do it than have you guys there um, championing that. Yes. Hey, yeah, and listen, anytime you've got, you want to talk about a new release or you got something, because I know you must have a billion things in the pipeline that's going to be coming out for years or whatever, you're welcome back anytime. As long as Adam's here, I'll be here. Okay. That sounds <laughs> Absolutely. great. Absolutely. <laughs> yep. Something's wrong with this guy. <laughs> Thanks, Thank you, guys. brothers. All right. That's going to wrap up this episode with Jeremy Corbell. A special thanks to both Jeremy and Adam for joining us tonight. You can follow Jeremy at his YouTube channel or at ExtraordinaryBeliefs.com. We'll be back in two weeks with a new show. Please remember to support our sponsors. They help keep the show free and the lights on in Blanket Fortiana. Special thanks to John Bolin. To use my, my voice. G-R-A-Y. To use my, my voice. R-O-D-S. Approval to use my voice recording. Our show is edited by Sarah Voorhees Wendell and co-produced by Tess Feifel, who is also our head of research. Our theme, which is available as a ringtone, was composed by Judson Crane, and our sound design and additional composing is by Ryan McCullough. 
Special thanks to the Astonishing Research Corps. But most importantly, we want to thank you, our listeners. Visit our store at astonishinglegends.com or interact with us and other listeners on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. You can also support the show at patreon.com slash astonishinglegends, where patrons have access to additional bonus content. No part of this show may be reproduced anywhere without permission. Copyright Astonishing Legends Productions. Good night.